0: back to another episode of the Field Guide Podcast. I'm your co-host, Nathan Droids, local extension educator for Stearns, Benton, and Morrison counties. And with me as always, Claire Lacan, local educator for Rice and Steel counties. How are you doing today, Claire?
1: Good, doing well. How are you?
0: I'm pretty good. good. So today we are actually back with a far- on a farm here that we were at here not too long ago. Claire, would you like to reintroduce them to us?
1: Yes, we are happy to be joined today by the Perfers. We have Jim and his sons, Mark and Matt. So thanks again for having us out and happy to delve into your practices a little bit more today. So uh, yeah, if you could kick us off. By uh, last time we talked about how you have been doing some conservation tillage, Reduced tillage in general, but actually, I'd be really interested to hear you guys explain a little bit about what vertical tillage is, just for some of our listeners who may not be aware of that, and then also why you chose to go in the direction of vertical tillage versus some of our other reduced tillage options.
2: <clears throat> well, I can, this is Matt here, I can start, uh, I can take the first bite in the elephant, I guess, here with this, because it's a, it's a multi pronged question, but I guess in our mind, vertical tillage. It's, it's, it's reduced tillage practice. And essentially, what it is it, is our equipment, it has two gangs of discs. Now, when you say disc, it's kind of the, it, it's not a true disc with a concave in, in the blade where it's causing compaction. This is a straight disc with a flange on the bottom or a ripple effect on the bottom. And, and our goal with this is to not necessarily turn the dirt back, black, but to size the, the residue on the surface to help aid in decomposition of the stocks. Um, so we have two gangs of discs, straight up and down discs with, with no concave, and then um, in the back of the machine is a, what they call a star wheel, which is basically there to help push in residue into the ground to prevent it from blowing away, and then a rolling basket on the backside. So what we're doing in our operation is we're doing that in the fall after corn to help size those stocks, and then we are still playing around, but we're doing it in the spring. Um, we got some tests out there whether or not the spring tillage application of that vertical tillage machine is worth it or not. So um, we got some test plots out there, and I don't have the numbers right off the top of my head, but basically it's a two-pass system, spring and fall.
3: And to, to underscore what Matt said on, on the um, test plots we've had or the side-by-sides we've had, so what we looked at is, is doing vertical till in the fall, then vertical till again in the spring, and then uh, on the side-by-side it would be vertical till in the fall and then just straight no-tilling right into that uh, in the spring with the planter. So just basically, we're just looking at, you know, does that spring pass with the, the vertical till again? You know, is it economical and does it pay for itself? So this was our second fall running this machine. We were very happy with it the first
2: year. The only issue, and we kind of talked about this out there a little bit, but I'll bring this back into it is the only issue with the machine that we see and we're trying to figure out a, a way to do it is to prevent the residue, mostly the corn, or the corn husks from blowing off the field in the fall. That's our biggest thing is right now we're seeing with these windy days this fall, with all the snow cover out there, we're seeing these husks start blowing off our field, you know, into our ditches, into tree belts and things like that. So we're trying to figure out a way right now currently and how to prevent that.
4: And this is Jim here, but my my thoughts are that we could probably just eliminate that whole rolling basket in the back of the machine in the fall. And I think the, the hammers that are running in front of that would push that, the stocks in the soil enough that would hold it there without the basket pulling them back up
2: and we've even talked the rolling basket or also in the fall of leaving um, we actually shut off our chopping head when we're doing this operation to leave a row or two staged on the headlands to prevent those stocks from blowing off our field so can we have some natural barriers of stocks out there to, to prevent the blowing of huss we just haven't we haven't done that yet. That's maybe an idea for next year—a
3: snow fence of sorts. Yes, man. there you go. Yep. The other, the other issue. I mean, if we're going to talk about the good, bad, and the ugly with it, the other issue we've had with the vertical till is um, just leveling ground. I mean, if you have, if we have a ruts, or if you need to actually, you know, level that ground, and the way we, I guess, the way we found it is we we do some, we did some just ripping um, on headlands to reduce some tillage and we just went over it in the spring with the vertical till and just by design i mean it makes sense when you think about it afterward i mean that's really again sizing chopping up the residue on top and kind of mixing in the residue with the top couple inches of soil it's not you know it's not really designed to just level the ground so and some of that it was it was rougher than what, what we uh what we thought it would be when we when we went through it with the vertical till so just keeping that in mind
0: Something, something I caught on here, you mentioned that you're looking at doing a two-pass vertical till system, that you're currently doing a fall and spring, and then you're contemplating going to a no-till spring. What are you gaining by put doing the vertical till in the spring versus going no-till? What is the difference in, well, I'm assuming there's got to be a, a seedbed difference there. What, what are we looking at? You hit the nail right on the head. I
2: mean, it's a seedbed, so that the pass in the spring will blacken it up quite a bit. So it's, it's basically, it's easier to plant into in the spring when we do that, we found, and then the question is, are you taking the material that you sized every six inches, are you taking them again, and now you're putting them to three inches when you do it in the spring? You're running your machine at a different angle than you did in the, in the fall. So are you, are you sizing them again to, put, to, to help prevent the decomposition of the stocks? Okay.
4: As, as we looked at emergence, so I thought some of the best emergence we had this spring with our beans was just vertical tilled once in the fall without anything in the spring. I, th- I thought that looked extremely good for us. The, we,
2: biggest, the biggest thing is when you're running this vertical till, there is still quite a bit of residue. I mean, I think it's, I, I forgot the number, I think it's 60, 65% of the residue is still on the surface. you got to have your trash whippers or your trash cleaners on the planter set correctly. I mean, the planter mm-hmm. setting is crucial in any sort of conservation tillage. I mean, there's not a lot of forgiveness there, and you got to get your seed in the ground. And we found, I mean, you got to get those husks moved all the way with them trash whippers. So we're, one, we're running our trash whippers a little bit more aggressively than probably what a lot of the neighbors are just to get to that, make sure we get that seed in black dirt.
3: And I would say just from when you're standing in that field in the spring, after it, it went through with that spring pass, I mean, if you were a betting person, you'd, you'd say, yeah, this, this is going to be better. I mean, it creates just an awesome seed bed. But it, we didn't probably see that much of a, a benefit um, with emergence, like, like Dad had talked about. And then ultimately it, it comes back to, you know, did you yield more to, to pay for that extra pass of tillage?
0: Well, and it's something there I'm wondering if you guys have managed to go out and just simply check soil temperatures before and after. Have you guys maybe monitored that to see if there's a soil temperature difference between the two?
2: We should. We don't have a probe. I mean, we never have, we've, or we've never had an issue with it, but we should just get a, a simple temp gauge in the ground, but we haven't. And I'm going to take this conversation on a little bit of a curve here. So one thing with this vertical tillage, we're talking about all the benefits. One thing that we are kind of paying attention to is, is with this conservation tillage, is the compaction side of it, right? I mean, you are, running, you, tr- you are running a disc. I know there's no concave, but you are running a disc. So we need to be really careful in the fall, especially that we are not going out there when the conditions are marginal because this vertical tillage is not going to pull up any compaction for us. So if we start compacting soil, we're going to probably compact it worse with a vertical tillage. So we need to make sure that we're paying attention as to so far as when we're going out there with, with harvest and spring because compaction could be a huge issue with this tillage practice because it's actually pushing it down versus with a ripper you're pulling up and heaving we're not getting that with this tool so compaction is something we definitely need to pay attention to
0: on on a side note we actually did a project we use uh meat thermometers as uh as a temperature gauge for soil you can go down about six inches or so it seems to be working that's what we use in uh, pesticide applications so if you got Is an inexpensive alternative yeah. yes yeah there you go uh,
4: so i got a question for you then are you looking at this temperature just to see if you should be planting or just to compare different tillage practices
0: well and, and that's really what temperature gets at because especially for corn we know that soils at 50 degrees or greater 10 you know we get that emergence so we have to have a certain temperature threshold and that's part of the rational rationale behind people who go in and they plow everything up every year and turn everything black is that when you come into the spring you have a warmer seed bed to plant into and so that's part of the reason why i was kind of curious as to if you guys have done that or not just simply because if your seed bed if you're not gaining in terms of temperature then you know then that might help explain some of the emergence that you're you know the reason why you're not seeing the emergence issues if your temperature's not increasing I guess
4: throughout my years of farming, if the soil was fit to plant, we would plant. Yeah. Uh, actually, we started planting April 6th with beans this last year. We were out there Easter weekend, and we had it all worked out fine. We planted some early beans and corn, and both worked well. We, were, we probably, the biggest concern we had was when those beans got up into the first and second trifolia. We started freezing a little bit at night, and a few of the beans around the outside edges got nipped, but not enough to come back and do any kind of a replant. And and it was some of our better
0: beans. Mm-hmm. That's that's the sort of thing that makes the old soybean agronomist in Wisconsin a little nervous. I <laughs> uh, had, had a couple of guys in Wisconsin new plant here a few years back. Plant, started planting at the end of February into March because things got warm enough, and and he's going, mm. So, you know, in that case, Sarah, you know, April sixth is is well, it's early. It's early for central Minnesota. I don't know if it's actually like that early down here.
1: It's, it's on the early side, yeah. <laughs> the, okay.
0: Okay. Just just checking here. But you know, when when I look at that well, especially with soybeans, the, the frost issue, once you get out in that out of the ground, if you can get a couple of trifoliates out there, you're usually just fine because beans have the incredible ability to compensate for bad events this is the reason why hail and things like that. We you know, as long as you've got a growing point, as long as you've got an axillary bud, you can freeze the top part of that plant and still have have it come through. And on that front, that's pretty much what everyone that I've ever met, you know, as soon as things are good to go, they're out there going because well you you better get out there, otherwise you're you're gonna miss a window or, or something oh, as soon as you can get out there. But that's just you know, the typical the agronomist in me is sitting there saying, Well, if we wait for fifty degrees, that's that's usually when when, I, when I'm when I want to see things go out because then the risk you know your risk of loss there decreases.
3: I should add some context too. So we talked on the last podcast about uh being mostly mostly uh tiled ground and I think dad had said we were, you know, 97%, um, pattern tiled ground. So what we went actually went out on is the 3% that isn't tiled and conditions were perfect. And yeah. we just wanted to go out there and make sure it's like, Hey, seed yeah. bed's perfect. Let's get that in the ground before, yeah. if it would get wet, it would have been fine. It was a dry spring, but, um, you know, so, so we did go out there early and do it. I mean, we did shoulder some risk there just cause yeah. you, it's before the planting date, uh, for, yeah. for crop insurance. So we would lose our replant coverage, but, yeah. You know, again, on, on a few acres just to make sure it got planted in good conditions. Yep.
1: And actually, since you said pattern tiled again, could you define that for our listeners too?
4: Well, when we first started off, we were pattern patter tiling every 80 feet. And then uh, we ran that program for quite a few years, and then we went down to 60 feet between the spacings. And currently now if we tile, we're at 40 feet. So every 40 feet out there. We've went back and done a little bit of splitting on some of them 80-foot spacings, and uh, I'll say the lower ground. But um, for the most part, uh, everything we're putting in now is at 40 feet spacings.
3: Yeah, so basically it's 40, 40 feet or 60 feet or whatever your spacing is. Uh, fence row to fence row is, is the easiest way to think about it when we, when we say that term.
4: And we're using, for the laterals, we're using 4-inch tile out there. I know some of the people are squeezing them down even more so, and going down to a three-inch tile, but we're we're forty feet and four-inch tile.
0: About how far down are you putting that tile? How far uh, down? Three, four going? feet. About yeah. well, four, four feet.
1: We didn't go into this too much in our last podcast, but you guys use some cover crops as well. So, how do you see those interact with your pattern tile?
4: We haven't had any issues yet. I know there's some new products out that the University of Minnesota is pushing, Kerns and stuff. And we've held off trying some of that because that plant will go down, what, six feet, the roots? And I'm worried about plugging our tile lines up with them. But as far as the cover crops go with that shorter maturity in there, we've been fine. And we're experimenting with, uh, we started off with 30-inch rows with the cover crops interseeding at like the V5 or V7 stage. And then we did some 60-inch rows where we'd block every other row unit off from the planter. And the last couple of years, we've been working with the Clean River Partners, uh, the Cannon River Watershed up here, and we've been up to some 90-inch cover crop rows. You know, we're planting 30-inch, 60-inch, and now some 90-inches in there. And what we're seeing for the dry part of that the forage coming out, our 30-inch rows were giving us, and I'm I'm just off the top here a little bit, but 30-inch rows will give us about 200 pounds of dry matter. The 60-inch rows will give us about 800 pounds of dry matter. Wow! And we get up to those 90-inch rows, we're seeing 16, 1800 pounds of dry matter. So I always looked wow. at this as a beginning farmer, and we have cattle here, and I'll let the boys talk about their their operation there, but. I always viewed this as a farmer with limited acres could plant corn and harvest it plus get forage for the cattle. I thought it was a great way if you had a great way of getting into the operation or into a diversifying out your operations you got to support both the cattle and the grain industry.
3: Yeah, and we've utilized I mean we've utilized some of those cover crops with the, with the cattle. So we have a cow cap up. Cow calf operation. Um so we've you know fenced it after we harvest the, the corn and and just you know let them run corn stalks and and utilize that cover crop. We have one year we also fenced just let it go and in the spring we we ran them out there just to get them on the on the uh cover crops uh before we turned them out on, on our summer pastures. Uh, just let them pastures grow a little bit more and mm-hmm. get more established. Um, it, the, the, the 30, 60, 90 inch corn, um, I mean, it does come with some challenges too. And the first question I always hear from people is what did it yield? Right. I mean, that's yep. at the end of the day, that's, that's what we need to know. And, um, dad, you probably have the actual data on this. I mean, we've done it three years now. Um, and what I would say is the 90 inch rows has always been the lowest.
4: Yes. We've taken a little bit of hit a year ago the 60 inch rows were actually our highest yield they beat the 30 inch rows for us but this last fall now our 30 inch yielded the best and then it was the 60 and then the 90 trailed a little bit behind that
3: yeah and it seems to me like the the wider the rows get the more variable i mean the the wider the swings get in yield if that makes sense
1: but you have a bit of a trade off it sounds like so you may have a reduced corn yield it sounds like but you have that increased biomass. So, do you see that paying off with your forage costs or your feed for your animals?
4: It's it's really close. The biomass will just about make up the yield difference for you,
3: depending on your cost of forage, right? I mean, so yeah. every operation is a little bit different. Um, it seems like we have enough forage around, or we can just run them on corn stocks and have enough corn stalks available. But if you're short on if you're short on feed, short on forage, I mean, it's worth more to you than if you have you know, in abundance of of forage. So there's a trade-off.
4: Now, if I could talk negatively about this, we switched over to conventional corn a few years back, and when we were in the the glyphosate or the GMO corn program, I could go out early and use a burn down of glyphosate and spray it, and then the day that we... Planted our cover crops at that B5, B7, I could go back out with another shot of glyphosate and burn down or take care of everything that's out there. With the conventional program now, we can still use that shot of glyphosate pre-merge, but we really don't have anything to come back with. So we've struggled with weeds the last couple of years, and I, I think our cover crops going forward will probably go back into a late summer application of it just where we can come out and use a full rate of herbicides on on these uh on the corn crop that's our primary goal here is to produce you know corn crop
2: or just make sure you know if you're interceding into the corn stocks make sure it's a traded bean you know if you're on a 50 50 rotation making sure you're knowing what bean you're planting into it the next spring that's the other way we've combated it too is going trade a beans back into like a cereal rye. And uh, then we can obviously use Roundup or whatever we might need to use to control that cover crop.
1: And as our weed guy here, I see Nathan's ears perking up a little while you're talking about your herbicide program. So, what do you have to add, Nathan?
0: I really don't have to add anything. I, you know, that, that two-pass glyphosate system, that's actually one I know some guys were throwing two hundred and forty d in in some instances before coming in before V5, V7, somewhere in there. And that's just simply because you could kind of push that, and your your two hundred and forty will have a little bit of a carryover, but that's, I think, two weeks on, on most of those labels. And so I don't know maybe what you've seen, if you've tried that or... Yeah, we, we've been using half rate of a
4: 2,4-D, and it'll take we're not getting the coverage or the, the control we'd like out of a half-rate program out there.
0: Well, and, and the other question there, and I think this probably plays into this a little bit, is what species are you planting in terms of cover crops?
4: Mm-hmm. I love Af- African cabbage. <laughs> <laughs> African cabbage. Yeah, we're, we're doing some winter peas, African cabbage. Uh, the cabbage is a great feed for the cattle. Uh, we're doing some beets or turnips uh, annual ryegrass.
0: I mean, I'm I'm sorry. This African cabbage. That's not, that is a, an actual brand new cover crop species for me. Is it? Does it actually put on a head? Is that what the cows eat, or is that what you're going for? Or what does that even look like?
4: Well, the African ca- well, it looks like a cabbage plant out there. Okay, and kale has worked extremely well for okay, us. Yeah. We were actually. Two years ago, we had too high of a population of kale out there, and it kind of shaded out everything else. But yeah, it's it's we're using like a four or five way mix normally, and the cost of that is like twenty five, twenty eight dollars an acre plus the interseeding. We're using our local Rice County Soil and Water District. Uh, they built a, a cover crop machine and. And they're interceding with that, and we're using that program and it's 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 worked well
0: well, I admit I prefer my the cattle to have to eat the kale versus myself that's a, <laughs> that's, that's how I get my kale so well,
4: the cattle the, they eat they eat it all
0: they they love it that's what I've heard and and it was actually my first experience with that was actually up in central Minnesota, where I first guys had a couple of guys growers up there said, yeah, they'd like to throw kale in there and then they'll go out and graze the Raise the cattle on it and they seem to eat it and I'm like oh that's that's a good way to do it I guess yeah it's better than I'm, I'm not a huge fan but cows obviously like it there was something else that you mentioned you mentioned that you put up fencing after you get your corn out and of course when we deal with pastures and things the temporary fencing is a huge deal and there's a lot of different ideas around that what does your alternative temporary fencing actually look like
3: um, so we just use like a poly wire rope type thing. Um, it goes up really easy. It's easy to move. The key we've found is have a really good fencer on it. Um, but no, it uh, we probably switched to that five or so years ago before we were just rolling out wire, and that was more cumbersome. But yeah, it goes up quick, easy, um, easy to work with. It's all on reels. So, I mean, you you just sit
2: on the four-wheel and reel it out. I mean, it, it works pretty good. It's pretty... I mean, it's one strand out there, so I mean, it's you've got calves that will go underneath once in a while, but it works good.
1: And just to clarify, that's electrified, yes. and what kind of posts do you use?
2: So dad actually came up. I mean, we just put a T-post in the ground and put a PVC pipe over top of it for insulator, so we just tie right off the PVC pipe is what we do.
4: Those are the corner posts. In between, we're just using the poly push-in posts that hang. The
1: it. pigtail? Yeah,
3: whatever kind. I mean, we, we oh, just okay. use like a plastic post that you step in, but... Yeah. So we really, I mean, in the fence that's out there right now, we have a steel post pounded in, you know, on every corner. And that's the only steel post we put in the ground. And then we just put a PVC pipe over it and yeah, it goes up really quick.
0: Well, that's good. And, and because I know Troy Sulzer will ask, where did you get your Curly Q posts at? Where, Where did you buy those?
3: We don't
2: have any curly Q. I mean, we bought all of ours from Fleet Farm.
0: Okay, all we, right.
2: We're lucky now. We got rid of all the fiberglass ones. Your hands aren't full of slivers when you get done with this. Yeah. So now yeah. Now we're away from the fiberglass
0: ones, thank God. Okay.
1: But well, I get my curly Q pigtail post from Fleet Farm too.
0: Okay, all right. I know, I know that's a big thing. My uh, dad
1: says if you can't get it at Fleet Farm, you don't need it. So. Called
0: the man's mall for reasons. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, Troy's up there, up there in St. Louis County, and and. I was up there for a grazing workshop, and that was one of the big questions. There are certain ones they like and certain ones they don't, and and they have sometimes have trouble sourcing those really good ones because they, they tend to have them out there all year long, and, and it helps them with moving cattle along. So that's another question there is do you guys just fence off the outside or do you guys try to move them throughout the field and, and move uh, the rope around?
3: Yeah, we. I mean, basically we try to fence it off, let them have an area, and then move them usually twice or three times and then once it gets freezing we'll just leave them out you know kind of close to the barn and and uh close to home there i mean we'll just leave them out on a winter corn pasture um for the for the whole winter yeah okay and that's where we'll feed hay at too so we actually got a roundabout feeder where it, throughout you know every time we
2: feed hay we will move that feeder i mean we get a concentration of manure and build up around there so we go with the tractor and just push it to the next spot and it kind of builds organic matter over a while it should at least in them areas too
0: so yeah
4: what we've witnessed over the years is, once we moved the hay feeders out to the field, our calving problems really lowered. I think the okay. cows are getting a lot more mm-hmm. exercise; they're staying in better shape, and uh, it's helped us with our calving.
1: Yeah, that's a neat observation. We yeah. are not livestock people, uh, yeah, that's, so <laughs> that's
0: a problem. I wish that, I wish that Dana was here. Yeah, um, yeah, she could she could talk to that. No, that's that's very interesting. And, and actually, you're not the first person I think really mention that you know once you start opening up fields for for cattle to go out in that their you know problems tend to start disappearing but it'd be interesting to, to actually get into it at some point
4: and it's a lot easier than cleaning the barn out all the time too. It's just <laughs> right it's yeah it's naturally spread for us
0: do you guys actually have to go out there and, and do you have to spread it from around the round bale feeder or is that you just leave it and
2: we have a bed pack out there that will go spread I mean, we'll give them a spot to lay out there. Um, But where the hay feeders are at, we normally have not had to. Some years we'll, I guess if it gets really bad, where we just leave it in one area too long, we will have to go kind of manually spread that out. But for the most part, we haven't had to.
0: Um, So, you know, the biggest, probably one of the biggest uh, questions that we always have and and something that we always want to talk about is return on investment. And so we've talked a lot about tiling. We've talked about covers. We've talked about uh, 30, 60, 90-inch corn and tillage, vertical tillage. And it all comes down to the numbers. And, of course, we've got numbers guy here, and then you two have, you know, kind of integrated into that. When we're talking about things like vertical tillage versus no tillage versus the conventional side, what are we looking at? What are, what are the numbers that you guys are seeing that actually has led to you to continue to pursue this?
2: Well, I would say, you know, as a whole, every winter we sit down just in general and go through, hey, which fields worked, which fields didn't, based off our yield monitors and I would say one tool that we really utilize a lot, you know, especially when you go to that no-till versus conventional tillage, is we're using um, the Iowa State as a custom farm survey, basically. And from there, we'll really, I mean, that's kind of our benchmark we'll use, and we'll bring back in our own kind of numbers the best we can figure them. But I mean, I, I would say on our no-till acres, I have a spreadsheet put together for it, and I unfortunately don't remember the numbers off my top of my head, but it was roughly about 30 to 40 bucks an acre we are saving in our, in our going to beans by going no-till. And a lot of that's incorporated in, you know, your fuel numbers. Your, you know, that's going from a ripping to no-till. And what's the difference there? Um, so, so ripping definitely is a big part of that. And then as well, our rock picking bill is very high. So our, our rock picking, the amount we're saving there is is factored in that number. And that's really where the bulk of that $30 40 bucks an acre that comes from rock picking and just simply the the
3: tillage aspect of it. Um, so that's just one example, I guess, to
2: help answer that question.
3: I mean, when we first looked at it to start with. Um... You know, Matt, Matt kind of touched on it. We tried to quantify a dollar amount of, you know, what's it cost for fall tillage, what's it cost for spring tillage, what's it cost for, you know, picking rock, um, roll. You don't have to roll it. Um, you know, all these different passes, and that's how we, you know, we basically converted that back to bushels. And it's like, wow, well, we can give up X amount of bushels and still have the same net return per acre, right? I mean, that that was the okay. concept we had behind it. So that's what kind of eased us into it is, is working through the numbers and being like, yeah, let's try it. If, if we don't give up too much, we can do this. And really what we saw is we got into it and it, a lot of times we'd get the yield results back and it, it was, you know, we'd maybe give up, you know, half a bushel an acre or something. And it, it's just like, yeah, we gave up a little bit of yield or or a bushel an acre, whatever it was, each farm was a little different, but we got into it and it's like, yeah, we gave up a little yield, but net return per acre, you know, it was, it's a no brainer. So um, that's what got us started and we started doing more of it and then kind of integrated the vertical till just to have a little bit more consistency but um, that was the thought process behind it and an interesting I'll, I'll step in front of here an interesting one we found too with no-till
2: is that our disease pressure in beans is way less so with our conventional tillage we really struggle with white mold I would say in the last five years that has been our biggest yield Robert um, is white mold with this heavier dirt and um, you know higher manure pressure so, when we went with no till, we found that we had way less disease pressure, namely white mold, because of our, or in our no till acres. And that helped, you know, drive us more to no till or uh, conservative tillage practice. And we weren't even, I mean, we weren't planning on that. We didn't know that was gonna happen until we kind of got into it. And that was a big, big factor that's kind of kept us on this path before beans or in our bean crop.
4: And I, I think we're building healthier soils as we stay with this minimum tillage route also. And uh, those returns will pay off for years to come. And on the revenue side of things, we've been able to land land some contracts with non-GMO products that pay a premium. And that helps add to the bottom line greatly in some of these cases too.
2: Now just to share with some of our failures on this topic too, right? (laughs) Because it doesn't come without failures. So when dad mentioned those contracts, they're all. I'll just put a warning out there, there's been a couple contracts that haven't worked in our favor, just to say it as nicely as what I possibly can. Um, so if anybody's out there looking to get in these contracts, there are some available, but just make sure you're reading the very, very fine print. Um, sometimes if it if it's too good to be true, it truly is too good to be true, and, and there's a catch in there somewhere. And we've been burnt by two of them that can in my mind. I'm not going to name anybody, but... Make sure you know what you're getting into before you sign on the dotted line. There's some great ones and there's some that aren't so great. And just
3: make sure you know the company you're working with. Especially if it's a new company. I mean, do your due diligence and, and uh, do your research on it. Um, the, other, the other thing to just mention on them non GMO contracts is you know they need to be pure non GMO. So, um, segregation or separation, I mean, we're not doing all of our acres non GMO. So, that does cause an extra you know, kind of a layer of. of Processes when we when we switch from traded beans to to non GMO beans and making sure we keep them separate, keep them separate in storage, purge the combine, you know. So it, it it's not without its its own few nuances that you have to manage. And logistics. I mean, it's it's a buyer's call program for a reason. They're going to call and want that
2: crop when they're when you're probably busy with something else. So I mean, it, it's it truly is more management, it's more logistics behind it because it, it's when it's convenient to them, not when it's convenient to you, and that's how you're getting the premium.
4: And even like when we do our non-GMO corn, uh, we'll pull in and we'll harvest the headlands off around the neighboring cornfields and then keep that corn separated from the middle of the field, so to speak, to make sure our purity is okay on the test that we need to go through with it.
1: So the non-GMO contracts are one way that you've, you know, gotten a premium, you've seen less disease pressure. So that's one input cost that maybe has been lowered. What are some other things on the input side that have helped you increase your net return?
3: Yeah. The other, the other piece is, um, you know, reduced labor and reduced, uh, machinery cost, you know, as you're reducing them, uh, them passes across the field. So I don't know that we have it exactly nailed down as far as how many dollars when you start factoring in depreciation and, and you know, use of machinery and exactly how many gallons we're saving by, by not going out and in reducing some of those passes. But uh, you know, that's where we've utilized some of this Iowa State data and and the customer rent survey, that sort of thing, and just you know from a from a ten thousand foot overview, putting some dollars and cents to things and saying, hey, we're we might not have it exactly pinpointed to the to the penny, but yep. we we have some general um, general observations that in general general stats that, that show, hey, we're, we're reducing in the ballpark of, of X by by not uh, going out and, and going over them acres uh, in the fall and in the spring and, and that sort of thing.
4: I think another thing that you have to watch with this reduced tillage is that what's coming out of the back of the combine needs to be spread uniform. It's, uh, you just don't, yep. it's got to be a uniform spread out there for soil warm up and, and future handling coming in the next season
0: well this seems like uh, we need to start wrapping this up here and so uh, again thanks for joining us here but I do have one final question and uh, this is actually for you Jim and it was something that you mentioned that I thought was actually quite uh, important to maybe have you highlight a little bit you mentioned soil health in terms of return on investment and that it would provide you know, for future generations uh, down the line here. And I was hoping maybe you could expand on what you're thinking of in terms of return on investment with the soil health practices that you're doing and what that means outside of dollars and cents.
4: Well, organic matter, building organic matter is huge in my mind. And I, I've heard the numbers what each percent of organic matter will hold in the soil, but it's, it's, it's huge. It's, it's, the numbers are there. As the organic matter increases, your black soil on top is building. It, as we all know, it takes what 40 years to to add an inch of black soil to the top. So if you can hold your soil in place, it's huge. You, you're, we've all seen the brown hills that the topsoil for the most part is pretty well gone or diluted down, and and by doing this conservation work. And building soil health, I think we're keeping that soil up on top of those hills. And, uh, yeah.
3: The other, I mean, I guess the other thing for me is, you know, you're reducing, you're reducing erosion. And, and really, what the, in my mind, the goal is, by implementing some reduced tillage, is, is, you know, providing an environment that, if they so choose, the next generation can take it over. So, you know, selfishly, I look at my kids, right, and I say, hey, if, if, if they want to... Have a life in agriculture like we've been privileged with. You know, is the are we taking care of the ground today so they can farm it tomorrow or in the future. And I think the coolest thing about it is too now
2: is the advances we've had, we're able to do this conservation tillage while also being economical and get that return that we've seen before too. So we're starting to bridge that gap between, you know, there's not such a big discrepancy of, well, I'm conserving my soil, but I'm giving up X amount of dollars per acre we're we're starting to see a system maybe now on our operation where it's they're kind of going hand in hand which is very cool to see.
1: That's this, a great point. I think agricultural production and conservation are not mutually exclusive, right? Like you're saying they can be compatible goals. So, it sounds like you guys are really working at that.
4: So, as we plan our 160 or 165th crop out here this year. Yes. We want to make sure there's another 165 years plus left out there when we're done
1: i like that that's a great way to end <laughs>
0: yeah that's a great way to end so yeah, thanks for joining us here on the this today's episode of the field guide podcast if you'd like to learn more or get in contact with your local extension agents uh, go to z.umn.edu backslash local and you'll find every county there with, complete with contact information including for both claire and myself uh, again thanks for listening Tune in next time.